Sounds great. Absolutely incredible. That's better than he does it with um, the arms. Yeah, it's true. Um, At least it's got a lot more syllables. Okay, go, 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 go. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. I am Justin Pardee, and I had to do that three times just to get it right. That's because I'm, you're a professional. It's true. I'm Stephanie Keen, and I'm going to do my best to not say um today. Amen, and I am PMB. <laughs> we got Pastor Matt Brown here in the house. He's going to be answering your questions. Man, we love doing this show each and every single week, taking your questions that you send in either in response to the sermons or your own reading in the books of Luke and Acts that we've been going through together as a church, and we love getting your questions. We do. So if you've got questions as you've been reading and you want to send those in, you can send those in at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the debrief podcast, or you can send those in at our website, sandalschurch.com slash the debrief. We would love to get your questions here on the podcast. The only thing we love more than getting your questions here on the podcast is receiving your five-star reviews in the iTunes store. So before we jump in with some follow-up questions from the past and then getting into Acts chapter seven here, we've got two great five-star reviews from iTunes iTunes that I want to share with you. This one comes from Nessers91. Sweet name. Which mm-hmm. disturbs me because I'm usually people put numbers in their na- usernames for like the year that they're born. Mm-hmm. I was born in 82, which means I'm at least 11 years older than this person. Mm. And um, makes me feel, makes me feel. Very, I guess it is. Oh, there was an um. Dang it. Yeah, I was trying to do um, math. That, that was, was the absolutely problem. Absolutely an um. <laughs> <laughs> The debrief is amazing. Pastor Matt does an incredible job helping me understand the detail and background of each story that is discussed. Digging deeper, I love this part, into every Sunday sermon has been a challenge for me, but the debrief has been an encouraging and uplifting tool. Every time I finish a podcast, I can feel my heart wanting more and being anxious for the following week. So, Amen. Wow. Super, wow. super cool. Now, this one is from Tarim Boyce. I hope I got your username <laughs> right there. Thank you for this podcast. You're welcome. And um, he and or she says, I find Pastor Matt's use of the word ultimately fun. Mm. So uh, apparently you say the word ultimately. Oh, I thought it was absolutely. You do say or just one. he says it in just the right amount to be fun. Not too much, not too little, just fun. That is right. Thank you, mental raise for the keen. Boom. So for those of you guys that are listening here each and every single week, if there are weird quirks or idiosyncrasies that you've noticed about any of us here on the show. Tell Justin, don't tell me. Oh yeah, send them in, send them in. I want to hear about this uh, because so far I think I've been doing a pretty amazing job, but I am definitely willing to see if I've been making some. Was that a self five-star review? Yeah, I (laughs) think you just reviewed yourself and gave yourself a mental raise. I don't really know what happened there. Did it all. Well, hey, let's jump into some (laughs) follow-up questions here. This one comes from Axe chapter six, which we covered last week in verse seven. So verse seven says, so God's message continued to spread. The numbers of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So how would their conversion have affected the church? Yeah. So this is the reason that there's going to be a huge, huge showdown at the OK Corral here in Jerusalem, because now the conversions are not just converting the people, but the professional laity are switching. So think about it, you know, um, like for example, it's one thing if you're Mormon for a Mormon to convert, but let's say in the Mormon temple up in Salt Lake City, they all start converting back to traditional Christianity. It's a real problem for the future and direction of the religion. And so what's happening here is, and that's not to in any way equate Mormons with the response here. It's just to say, whenever the professionals are switching sides, it's a problem for the future of uh, that particular uh, political preference and or religious preference. And so this is this is really, really a problem for them. And they got to shut this down now. So what they've done is they have threatened the disciples. Mm-hmm. They have flogged the, the apostles. And now what we're going to see is they're going to 
turn it up another notch and they're actually gonna kill somebody. So this is gonna be the first Christian martyr and it's terrible and tragic, but it's in response to their own ranks turning on them Mm -hmm. and placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so at this time in Jerusalem, there would have been anywhere from 10,000 priests to 18,000 priests um, you know, in the temple at any one time. And so they would have served. Many of them would not have been a part of the elite social class of the Sadducees. And so they're not as connected or as tied in with the political power. And they're there really to serve God and they're getting it. They're seeing what God's doing. They're seeing the movement of the spirit. They're seeing the miracles and the healings take place. And they're like, obviously, this is God. And so they switch sides. Man, that's a huge amount of priests. I got to be honest with you. I mm-hmm. think I would have been shocked if you even said anything more than like 120 or something like that. That's a lot. Um, were they all kind of a part of an economic system that was going on in Jerusalem? Yeah, absolutely. But just like in pastors today, some pastors are paid very, very well. Some pastors are starving. The same thing was true back then. Based upon your political connection, connections, your family history and family line, you were either a wealthy priest or a very, very poor priest. And so that was just dependent on each individual case. Got it. But most of the priests were not wealthy. Mm. They, they, they served um, you know, out of a heart and passion for God, just like most ministers do the same thing today. Got it. Okay, so here's one more follow-up question. This comes from Kelly after your sermons and then uh, what we've talked about here in Acts chapter 5 over the last couple of weeks. She says, The issue of money is huge in my marriage as I am learning and growing in my desire to give back to God what he has blessed us with, but my non-believing husband does not agree. He struggles with his ideas of the church, particularly one the size of sandals being a business. I have a desire to give what I can weekly, which is whatever I have in my wallet, so as to stay under my husband's radar. Now, with regard to Ananias and Sapphira, they were on the same page financially, but in a deceitful way. Am I being deceitful such that God would not approve? Yeah. So first of all, let me just say thank you for your honesty and your integrity, as I appreciate you trying to live out the vision of Sandals Church and be real. You know, so to your husband's concerns, absolutely the church is a business. We have to operate, we pay bills and we do everything just like a business. But I would say we're not a business in the way that like McDonald's is a business. We're a business in the way that a family's a business. Mm-hmm. Okay, families don't get together to be a business, but the reality is families have to pay bills, you know, create food, opportunity and all of those things. And so the church has to do the same thing. So from your non-believers, you know, your non-believing husband's perspective, I can understand a church is just yet another entity in his life trying to take his hard-earned money away. Mm-hmm. The difference is we don't want to take it away. We want people to give it freely as God moves in their heart. So I'm grateful that um, God is moving in your heart and God is creating a passion and desire for you to give. However, this is what I would say is, I think God would have you submit to your husband and what he's saying in the home and not give Certainly, I think that that's negotiable if you have your own job, your own career, and your own money. I think that you have a right as a woman to do those things. But if he is the primary uh, money earner in the home and it's his money that you're giving without his consent, I think God would honor you in submitting to him even if he's not allowing you to give to the church. And so, you know, at the church, we don't want your money. We want your heart, and we're glad that you're here. And one day, I think if you continue to pray, God's going to give you an opportunity to give. So for now, I, I would not encourage any kind of giving that is behind the back of, of any spouse. It needs to be out in the open and in agreement. And some husbands, you know, you could talk with him about, well, what could I give? And if he says zero, then then give zero and and maybe serve some, you know, a little more with your time and do what you can do. Again, we don't want your money. We want you here. And I'm so grateful for your desire uh, to give and to be a part of blessing us as a church. But ultimately, what's more important than your money is your husband's soul. And we want him and we don't want there to be any barriers or anything preventing him from coming to Christ. And so I think as a church, a barrier to him coming to Christ could would be me teaching you to give behind his back. I don't think that that's 
that's in line with the gospel. It's in line with the truth. It's in line with what God has for you. So keep coming. Don't be uh, discouraged. Let others like, you know, Stephanie, myself, and Justin, let, let us give uh, in your place because we love serving the Lord and we love giving uh, to God as I, I know that you want to. So mm-hmm. just know that there are other people in the church that can give when you can't. And so thank you for uh, being so honest and so real about that. And I'll be praying for you and your marriage and uh, for your husband because I know that's got to hurt and that's got to be a very, very hard thing. Mm-hmm. Kelly, really quick. Uh, so I grew up and my dad was not a believer until I was in the fourth grade. And uh, my mom has talked to me since I've become an adult about really what one of the things that changed for her and my dad in the relationship that opened him up to Christianity. It was when she got to this place where she stopped being frustrated at him for not being a Christian and the man that she would have hoped that she had and started treating him as if he was one and submitting and following his leadership in that way. And that really changed the context of his heart. And, you know, I don't know their relationship perfectly, but I think that that laid the foundation and framework for him to be open to the work of the church. And uh, when I was in fourth grade, he gave his life to Jesus. So I think there's a lot of good wisdom uh, from my own life that points to what Pastor Matt just shared as well. Hopefully that's encouraging to you. Um, We'll be praying for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sending in that question. Okay, let's jump into Acts chapter 7. You gave us a little teaser of this last week when you talked about how Stephen makes this super epic speech that we're going to be hearing here. It's uh, in many ways like a pretty awesome (laughs) sermon. Uh, Let me hit you with the first couple of verses here. So verse 1 through about 8 or so says, the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And Stephen replies like this, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham and brought him here to the land where you now live and gave him the covenant of circumcision. At that time, so when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And then the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob. And when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. So this seems like a pretty interesting way to start his defense here. He's really being on trial. Uh, why is he starting with the history of Abraham and circumcision and responding to things this way? Well, because the basic accusation is that he's an outsider. What, you, what's be, what he's being accused of is saying, I'm going to tear down the law of Moses. I'm going to tear down the temple. All of these things are going to be destroyed. Now, part of that is true. The Christians did prophesy that the temple would be destroyed. Absolutely. That's something that Jesus said. It's something ultimately that did happen. It was a prophecy that would come true about 40 years after the death of and uh, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. So yes, the Christians were fully aware that, that this was gonna happen and talked about that. So what he's gotta do is he's gotta lay the groundwork that I'm not an outsider, I'm an insider. And so that's why he begins with these two words, brothers. So we're all family here. And mm-hmm. he's also being respectful to the high priest who has the authority to take his life, fathers. Mm-hmm. So there are men here that are above me and there are men here that are with me. We are together on this issue. We may not agree about what I'm going to say, but we are of one family and we are we are brothers in Judea, Judaism and we are uh, I am your son in Judaism. And so I am here today, not as an outsider, but as an insider. And so he's going to make this case to them. And so he has to start with Abraham. And so I think the reason that he starts with Abraham is twofold. Number one, that's where the Christian and Jewish faith start. It all starts with this guy named Abraham who basically comes from around the area of like modern day Iraq, Baghdad, that area. We're not exactly sure of this precise location, but just kind of think, you know, Northern Syria, Iraq, maybe way Eastern Turkey, somewhere in that region. And so he comes to the promised land as a person of faith. And so what he's doing is he's laying the groundwork that our faith as Jews has been a consistent revelation from God that we have always missed. We've missed it every single time. Mm -hmm. So it started with a guy who trusted God, not seeing anything. 
And now here we are today and you guys are blind to what is clearly seen. So Abraham was a man of faith who followed God without seeing things. You guys are seeing things. You are seeing tangible evidences of the movement of God. Abraham moved without seeing anything. Mm -hmm. He just believed. And so what he's trying to draw them back to is a people of faith. And the reality is they're not. They've turned uh, this beautiful religion that God has given Abraham, they've turned it into like our last call, a business. It's this whole political um, kind of uh, gathering of, of like-minded individuals who control power and really control the people. And it really isn't about God anymore, it's about them. And so he's speaking against that. And you know he's speaking to people in power about the fact that they're not in it for the right reasons and it's gonna get ugly. Awesome. So I have a quick question. The high priest that's questioning him, would that have been the same high priest who was at Jesus's trial? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I've looked at it. It's gonna be an Ananias or a Caiaphas or one of their relatives. And so I need to go back and we can use that for follow-up in future days. And I've got to track down uh, which one it is. So the text doesn't clearly say, so my best guess is going to be a guest because it doesn't list that. So um, we have to check that out. Cool. So in verses nine through 16, Stephen continues his uh, speech to these guys and is sharing with them. And he says, these patriarchs were jealous of their brother, Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He died there and so did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Sketchum and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamer's sons in Sketchum. So now we're getting into the history of Joseph. What's that part about? Yeah, so now he's switching to, I mean, he's gonna kind of do a, a quick overview of the entire story in the Old Testament. And he's, gonna, he's not gonna share everything, but he's gonna start with Joseph. So basically what happens is, um, you know, Abraham creates this family of faith. And ultimately, you know, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those are considered the patriarchs. Mm -hmm. And then Jacob, uh, whose name, um, you know, it becomes known as Israel has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so his most famous son is Joseph, who goes to uh, Egypt. Go, uh, go, go, Joseph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a slave, uh, because he's sold out by his brothers, because they were jealous of him. And they were jealous of, you know, just the blessing that God has. And what's amazing here is that's what they were with Jesus. They're jealous of Jesus. They're jealous of the apostles. They're jealous of God choosing to move in whom he chooses. Joseph is the youngest son. He's not the oldest. The oldest is supposed to get all the credit. And that's what these guys are. They're the oldest tradition at that time in Israel. And God is choosing to move through someone else. He's choosing to move in another direction. So he's setting up the case you know, of their family history that guys, we always get this wrong and we never like who God picks. Mm -hmm. And so what did you guys do? You guys, we guys, us as brothers and as fathers, our family sold Joseph, our own brother into slavery. Right? What did they do to their own brother, Jesus Christ? They crucified him. They killed him. Their own, their own fellow Jew, they did this. And they actually handed him over to Gentiles to be killed. And so what he's doing here is he's setting up this case hmm. that you always miss. We have, as a people, have historically missed the movement of God. And so people ask me that all the time. Well, why do Jews reject Jesus? And the answer is they have a history of rejecting God's prophets. They have a history of rejecting uh, God's movement. And what they're doing here is simply being who they've, they've been historically as a people. And what we have to do is not judge the Jews. We have to make sure 
that regardless of your denomination, if you grew up Baptist, Catholic, whatever, that you don't so get wrapped up in your tradition that you miss out on what God is doing. Mm. And so many movements of God do that is it's, well, you know, my family's this or my family's that. And so because of that, you don't allow yourself to embrace what God is doing. And it's so tragic that our family heritages, heritage, excuse me, and our family faith history actually prevents us from experiencing faith and experiencing what God is doing. For example, the Bible says God wants us to sing a new song. And we always talk about, well, we gotta mm-hmm. sing the old songs. We gotta sing the songs that they always sing. No, God wants you to sing about what he's doing in your life now. And so we become imprisoned in the old movement and we fail to embrace the new movement. And I know for a lot of people that come to Sandals Church, it's really, really difficult because things look very different than what you're used to. And I would say, great, hmm. we're preaching the same word, the same messages, the same truth, but the wrapping is different, but the message and the gift inside is not. And so we need to not get caught up in the outward wrappings of what the church is supposed to look like, but we need to be sold out for the message and how that transforms and changes people's lives. So I want you to notice here though, that they're setting the case that they didn't recognize Joseph the first time, but the second time they fall down on their knees and they beg for forgiveness because he is the most powerful person in Egypt other than Pharaoh. And he has the power to take their life. The same people that sold him into slavery, he has the power to repay them, um, but chooses not to. And that's Mm -hmm. absolutely important for what Stephen is setting up for the church in the future. Yeah, so verses 17 through 29, we're gonna get Stephen talking about Moses and him growing up in Egypt. And because the context was no longer friendly to uh, the people of Israel, he ends up you know, leaving and all that kind of stuff. It's starting to make sense here what Stephen is doing defending himself this way. Yeah, so now he goes into who Moses is. And, you know, Moses is this incredible person. Um, I love uh, verse 20. It says, at that time, Moses was born a beautiful child in God's eyes. Hmm. So I don't know if that means that he was ugly to look at, but he was beautiful in God's <laughs> eyes. I'm not exactly sure what that means. God, God saw through all the white yeah, baby God, goo. And yeah, said, God saw through it and, and felt like he was uh, the one. But uh, he was abandoned just like all little Jewish uh, boys were at that time and children. But Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, raised him as his own. And it's amazing here. Verse 22 says that Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in both speech and action. Uh, Later Jewish writings would teach that Moses was one of the wisest wisest persons of his age, Mm -hmm. regardless, not just Jewish person of all the world. And he studied and was wise and, and it was absolutely incredible. But what's amazing is as a gifted and as powerful as Moses was, he too was rejected the first time he tried to intercede on behalf of the Jews. And they asked him, who are you? Who are you to, to lord over us as he's trying to keep them from harming each other? Mm-hmm. And then basically he goes out and spends 40 years in the wilderness and then comes back and then they recognize him mm-hmm. as the leader. And so Israel has this history of missing the messenger of God the first time, which we know as Christians, there's two comings of Christ. There's the first coming, and there's the second coming, and they've completely missed the first coming of Christ. Yeah, and actually in verse 35, um, it talks about Moses getting sent back that second time. And it says, through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. What does Stephen mean that Moses is both their ruler and savior? Because in our mind, I think we think only Jesus is savior. Yeah, absolutely. So the actual word in the Greek is redeemer, but you know Jesus Christ is referred to as redeemer well. And so there's really not a big difference between the word redeemer and savior. It's basically the same world word. So, so how did Moses save them? He didn't save them, their souls, he saved their lives. So he saved them from death in Egypt. The goal of the Egyptians was to slaughter all of uh, the Jews or at least the, the vast majority of them. And so he saved them. He brought them out of physical slavery. So how, 
So what he's setting up for is God has moved through Moses to rescue the Jewish people from slavery. And that's what Christ has done. He's not rescuing us from a physical slavery, but he's rescuing us from a spiritual slavery. He's not rescuing us from physical death, but he's rescuing us from spiritual death. And so what he's trying to prepare them for is God has always had this heart to rescue, Hmm. absolutely always. And so just as the people didn't fully understand who Moses was, and they actually rebelled against him over and over again, even after all the amazing works that he did, which, what did Jesus do? He did all these incredible works and he was still rejected and they still didn't submit to him. And so here it's just, I mean, this is probably, you know, the most powerful sermon ever delivered and it's delivered without notes. It's delivered in haste. Mm -hmm. I mean, his life is on the line and the Holy Spirit is giving him these incredible words and he's speaking this truth. And it's just absolutely amazing what he's doing. And so he's just pointing out once again, you guys missed Joseph, you missed Moses, and guess what? You missed Jesus. Man, I think I missed something as I was reading through Acts chapter seven here. And as as you just pointed out, it's pretty impressive how good a job Stephen is doing of saying, here's this key moment from our faith's history. You missed it the first time, we got it the second time. Again, we missed it the first, we got it the second. It sounds like Stephen is pretty consciously thinking about the return of Christ Mm -hmm. as he's making his appeal here. Is that kind of why he's structuring it all this way? Yeah, absolutely. The difference is the second time Christ comes, it's too late. Mm -hmm. He's not going to come as the lamb the second time, he's gonna come as the judge. And so he's imploring them, he's begging them to repent now, um, to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ the son of God, you know, first, um, who saved them? You know, the son of Jacob saved them. Secondly, you know, the specific child um, picked by God was Moses, yet another son. Now God has chosen his own son, not the son of Jacob, not a son of Israel, but a son of God to save them forever, to be an ultimate uh, saving work in the lives of people. And they're gonna miss it and they're gonna reject this and it's going to be terrible and the consequences are eternal. Hmm. So as Stephen wraps up in verses 37 through 43, his talking and message about Moses, he says, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. But our ancestors, Stephen says, refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. So God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. So Stephen is saying here that God abandoned them and went, turned his back on them. But Christians, we always say, oh, God will never leave you. God will never leave you. God will always be with you. He will never let you go. When do we get to a point, do we get to a point where God will abandon us and turn away from us? Like yeah, that? so absolutely not if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Once you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you are forever sealed in the kingdom of God. You are forever locked in and God will never abandon you. However, uh, this whole passage here is very, very similar to what, what Romans starts with. In the book of Romans chapter one, God starts with that he, mankind continually rejected God, the creator of all mm-hmm. things and worshiped created things. And because of that, God handed them over to a depraved mind. And so ultimately what you get when you continually reject God is you get what you want, your life, your desires, your your passions. And that's what, that's what people um, don't realize is, is hell's gonna feel like Christmas for, for many people for a moment wow! until they realize they just, they just got a heap load of skubalin, which is a Greek word for crap. And they are forever cast away from the presence of God with this meaningless stuff. This is going to give me away as a Disney dad, but it's reminding me of 
like Pinocchio when they end up, all those little boys end up on the island and mm-hmm. it seems like super awesome. And then it's like, nope, we're like basically slaves yeah. turning into. They turn into donkeys, absolutely. So what he's saying here is, what's interesting is he's defending that he's against Moses and what's he doing? He's saying, you guys have been against Moses. Mm-hmm. You didn't listen, you didn't follow. So how dare you accuse me of this because you're hypocrites. This is exactly what you guys have historically done. Now you're saying like you're, you're his friends, but in reality, the people of Israel have always been his enemy. It's been very, very difficult. And oh, by the way, this guy, Moses, that you say that I'm against, told you that there would be someone who came after him that would be like him. That's in Deuteronomy 8.15. And you need to listen to that guy, but you're not listening to him. Is just like you reject, yeah, just like Yeah, just like you rejected Moses, you're rejecting the one who's like Moses who came after him and his name is Jesus. And you guys are blowing it again. You're doing this exact same thing again, and it's tragic. Can can we talk really quickly? I mean, this whole repetitive cycle, in, in some ways, feels like a thing that even believers go through, where we seem to get stuck in some of the same patterns and habits of choosing our own sins or falling into our own sins um, over and over again, even when we really don't want to. Is there a way to... How do we deal with that? Yeah, I think the only way to break the cycle is, is like I said, always at Sandals, is to become real with yourself. So what is the cycle of Israel? It's religious pride. We're the chosen people of God, we can do what we want, and they continually reject God in their pride. I mean, the Bible calls them stiff-necked people. They're just prideful. They refuse to bow their heads. That's what stiff-necked means. They don't, they don't bow, they don't humble themselves. Okay. Their head is erect, and they, you know, they refuse to humble themselves before God. And so I think every individual has to ask you know, themselves, what, what is their repetitive core sin? For some of it's lust, for some of it's fear, for some of it's pride or gluttony or greed. Right. For some of us, you know, we're liars. We're just in this constant cycle of not telling the truth. Um, all of us struggle in some area. And if you don't address that issue and you don't address it head on, you are going to spend your entire life just cycling through that sin over and over and over again. And that's why the church, you know, money, I think, is the easiest example. We have people in our church who just always struggle with money because they don't deal head on with their core issues. And so no matter how much we pray, no matter how many classes they take on financial peace, they're never at peace until they deal with this is our sin issue and it must be changed. And, uh, you know, for some of us, you know, that, that issue is addiction and we have to face it head on and realize our lives are at stake. And so unfortunately, the people of Israel you know, their core sin was actually their core pride. It was the thing that they, they actually appreciated the most about them. The thing hmm. that they thought was the most beautiful about them was actually the thing that was the most broken. Hmm. And so uh, we gotta be careful about that because oftentimes the things in our lives that we're proud of are the things in our life we should be the most broken of. And these guys just absolutely miss that. You know what? If you're somebody that's new to Sandals Church, maybe you've just been here for about a year or maybe a year or two. Pastor Matt did a really awesome sermon series uh, last year, I believe, called The Missing Piece. And over, I think, about six weeks or so, you really talked about how to identify some of those core sins in your lives and respond to those. Um, So if what he just said um, seemed like something you want to dig a little bit deeper into, go to sandalsearch.com slash watch and uh, check out some of the content that's there in our uh, Missing Peace series. Mm. Before we move on, let's look at verse 39. It says, But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses. So Moses went up to the Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He's gone for 40 days. They freak out. 
We need something uh, to worship. And so what do they do? They return to their old ways of worship, like they worshiped in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And they said, so they made some idols shaped like a calf and they sacrificed to it and celebrated, here's the key, over the things they made. Hmm. And here's what we're gonna get into moving forward. And, and here's where Stephen really gets them. So they say, you're rejecting the law of Moses and you are saying this temple will be torn down. Who made the temple? It's not God. The temple was never God's idea. It was David's idea. Hmm. And God allows David to build it, but God was perfectly willing to live in a tabernacle forever, a tent, hmm. a traveling, moving tent. And so what happens here is what they've done is they've taken this powerful, amazing God and they've put him in a box. It's a beautiful box. Hmm. It's a big box, but it's not his box. Hmm. It's their box. And so they're fascinated with this box and this box has given them power. It's taken power away from God. This box gives them celebrity. It's taken celebrity away from God. This box is all about them and it's not about God. And even today, you know, think about all the conflict that's in Israel. It's still over the box. Mm-hmm. People are still fighting right. over this box. And it's interesting that when Jesus returns, the one thing that's missing is the box hmm. in Revelation. He is our temple. Hmm. He is our presence. And it's not there anymore because ultimately you and I are to be the temple of God and he is to dwell in us and with us. And it's just so tragic. And that's, you know... Um, at Sandals Church, you know, we have a beautiful building. I'm sitting right now in our, our new offices that are so cool. But God is not about this. God is not about being contained. He's not about being controlled. Uh, he's about being released. And what's happening, what is the book of Acts? It is the release of the power of God and they're fighting against it. They don't want God to move. They don't want God to, to be wild. They don't want God to um, begin to bridge the gap between Greek-speaking Jews and Aramaic-speaking Jews. They're not interested in seeing Samaritans reached. They certainly don't want uh, the black eunuch in the next chapter reached, right? He's excluded from the temple. They want to keep the status quo when God wants to reach the world through his powerful movement. And, um, you know, what happened on Pentecost a couple of weeks ago was so radically different. So what happens in the temple? Bulls are slaughtered. What happens at Pentecost? Wind blows and fire comes. It's completely different. It's like what happened you know, with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. It was powerful. That's the movement of God. And these people are fighting the movement of God. And it's so sad, but I just, you know, I, I love the temple. I love going there, but we have to remember it was constructed with human hands, not with God's hands. And by definition, when we build anything, it's tainted. Hmm. So what's interesting about this whole idea that they wanted to build the temple, but God it was not his idea at all, is that in verses 44 through 50, we see that, you know, God gave them plans. Mm-hmm. Will, will he help us do things that we want to do, even if it's not his direct or primary plan for our lives? Right. Well, the plan in verse 44 is for the, is for the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. for the tent. So those aren't the plans for the temple. So God gave them the plans for the tabernacle, which was what he was fully capable. And what's, what's amazing about the tabernacle, it's a tent. It's not like any it's not like any of the ancient gods are worshiped in. It's not like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. You know, it's like something that you would see, you know, at uh, uh, Bass Pro Shops, you know? I mean, it's just not, it's, <laughs> right. you know, we're not talking about a glorious castle. We're talking about a tent and something covered with cam- canvas. And yeah, sure, there, was, there were beautiful parts in it, but it was pretty humble. Mm-hmm. And that's who God is. And so think about that with Jesus. He doesn't, he's not born in a kingdom. He's born in 
a manger in a cave where an animal would sleep. And that's who God is. And this is the radical nature of our God. And so, so yeah, it says that, you know, he gave them, verse 44, uh, they carried the tabernacle through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan that God had shown them. Um, and it was powerful. And God used that tabernacle to lead the people of Israel to take the land. And it was used powerfully until the time of David. But then eventually then Solomon is the one who ends up building the temple though. And doesn't, I feel like I remember reading God giving very specific instructions for how the temple is to be built, how it's to be constructed. So clearly he had very specific plans for if you're going to build this, this is how it should be. Right. Why does that exist then? Yeah. So, okay. So let's go back a step further. The people of Israel want a king. Mm-hmm. God says, you don't want a king, mm-hmm. but they, they begged. They begged God. God sent a prophet to say, this is what the king is going to do, right? He's going to take your money. He's going to take your women. He's going to uh, take your sons and put them in his army. It's a lose, 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 lose. But the people of Israel say, well, everybody else has. So he anoints Saul, then he anoints David. And then ultimately he says, okay, I'm going to bless this line really with what you always needed, which was me to be your king. Hmm. So ultimately through the line of David comes Jesus. So he gives them a king. And then ultimately he says, okay, David wants to build this temple. He wants it to look majestic. Okay, I'm going to do that. Here's the plans. But, but God's will was to be amongst his people, not to be contained in something built by hands. And it says, uh, verse 47, Solomon, who actually built it, listen to verse 48. However, the most high doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Mm-hmm. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. How could you build me a temple as good as that, asked the Lord? How can you build me such a resting place didn't my hands make both heavens and earth? And so what's amazing is God actually insults the temple built to the glory of his name. Yeah. Um, and why? Verse 30, 51, you are stubborn people. You are heathen. Hmm. The very thing that they think they're not, they are. <laughs> because what do they want? They want to look like every other religion. Well, every other religion has a temple. We have to have a temple. Every other people has a king. We have to have a king. And God is like, no, you don't. I'm your king. I'm your temple. It's just, it's just absolutely amazing. So Stephen closes out this whole message, and he says, they even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. So Stephen doesn't even get to Jesus, salvation, God's whole plan here, until the very, very end of his message. And then he basically, I guess, mic drop, stops talking. Why does he wait to get to the end to talk about Jesus? And what's his whole point with this defense and message? Well, I think he knows he's dead from the start. I think he knows he has no chance. Hmm. And it's not about defending himself. It's really about condemning them and telling them what, they, what they've done. Wow. So the, the high priest, it's, it's merely a formality. He's, he's actually just, I mean, according to law, you have to have a right to speak for yourself to stand up for yourself and give yourself like any last words. Yeah. And so he's spoken that, but at some point, I don't know that he, I don't think he stopped talking and dropped the mic. I think he's cut off because mm. verse 54, it says the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists at a rage at him. And so something happens here, man. And, and it just gets out of control. Um, I think he's grabbed, he's being carried out. Uh, you know, um, it's over. It's over. So I don't, I don't think he's allowed to Continue. specifically get to Jesus. Got it. 
Well, and what's crazy is in the next moment there, we kind of shift into what Stephen's seeing and experiencing while all that's happening. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Why would God have given Stephen this vision? Yeah, it's absolutely amazing because whenever, whenever the scriptures talks about Jesus, he's always sitting at the right hand of God. But this is an, uh, an alliteration, and it's the only place here in Acts where he's called um, the Son of Man, right? He says, I see the Son of Man standing. Mm-hmm. So he's always referred to as the Son of God or the Christ, but here he's referred to as the Son of Man, which directly goes back to one of the prophets who actually saw this first. And he said, the Son of Man standing hmm. in authority over all the nations. And so now Jesus is doing this. So it's a fulfillment of an old prophecy, and now it's come true, and it's absolutely amazing and he gets to see that prophecy that was spoken by a prophet fulfilled in his day and and i think what god is saying here is you have historically rejected me through through joseph through moses um you know even even david you've resisted the kings you've resisted my prophets you know all, all of the people that wrote about you you have killed them all and now you're going to kill the one who is currently speaking in my name and, and that's exactly what happens and i think god is validating stephen here and so he gets to see Jesus standing. And so what it is, is it's no longer faith, it's reality. Hmm. And he is transcending from this life to the next life. And it's just absolutely amazing. God gives him this special gift of being able to see beyond this life before he dies. And so he sees God standing in eternity, looking at him as, as, as I think it's personally welcoming him, welcoming him into the arms of wow. God. Hmm. It's powerful. He said, look, I see heavens open and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. God has chosen his messenger and it is Jesus. And unfortunately, God's people have rejected God's chosen messenger. Hmm. And I follow this organization called Mission India uh, on Facebook. And one of the things they do fairly often is they give you updates of pastors and church planters in that country who have been, basically who've been killed Mm -hmm. for their faith. And uh, all of a sudden now I just, I don't know, I kind of, Maybe this is false, and I'm just reading into I love the idea of God just really honoring those people, almost like he did here with Stephen, for that level of commitment to his, his church. That's really cool. I never thought about that before at Look all. Look at verse 57, though. It says, they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. Mm-hmm. They're physically refusing the gospel. Physically. It's yeah. crazy. I will not listen to you. Mm-hmm. I will not listen to this. It's tragic. They rush at him. They drag him out of the city and they began to stone him. So the normal means of stoning was you would take an individual and kind of throw them off a, like a precipice, maybe a 10, 12 foot precipice. Mm-hmm. And so they would like break their arm or their leg when you throw them off. So think about like throwing somebody off a single story house kind right. of that far. Yeah. So you're not gonna like just bounce up off that. And then what they would do is they would grab large boulders and throw it on you and crush you. And usually it was one or two boulders, but it seems to hear that something different was taking place, that it's literally pelting them with, with rocks until he dies. And so this was abnormally vicious. So, because usually the first boulder kills you. Right. But uh, here, um, and it says that his accusers took off their coats, right? So they're going to, I mean, they're warming up. Think of like a pitcher. Yeah. And they're just tagging this guy. They're making a statement. Right. And it says, verse 58, that they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yeah. So this seems to be like a kind of interesting detail that they just sort of throw in here. Was Saul one of the conspirators kind of doing this? Was he just sitting sitting back watching everything happen? 
Yeah, so I, Paul is one of the uh, Greek-speaking Jews, and the Greek-speaking Jews seem to be radical both ways, more radical than the Aramaic-speaking Jews. So what do I mean by that? Um, the conflict right now is between, which really, really with, is within the context of, of Greek-speaking Jews. So there's Greek-speaking Jews that are for Jesus, and there's Greek-speaking Jews that are against Jesus. And the Aramaic-speaking Jews are kind of, both sides, those who believe in Christ and not believe in Christ, kind of are just watching this take place. And part of the reason for that is, is that the Greek-speaking Jews were more zealous for God than the Aramaic-speaking Jews. It's kind of like, you know, when you grow up in the church, maybe you're not as, as passionate about God as the person who gets radically saved and completely changes their life because you've right. always kind of grown up in it yeah. and you're just like, yeah, whatever. So these Greek-speaking Jews have left their homelands. They've left everything to pursue God with all that they have. So they're, they're absolutely passionate Got about it. this. Uh, and they're militant in their faith. And so when they get converted to Christ, they're militant that way. Mm. They're like, no, it is Jesus or nothing. And so yeah. this conflict is between them. And ultimately that's who they're gonna run out of town is all the Hellenist speaking Jews. And they're gonna say, get out. But yeah, the apostle Paul is, you know, we don't know if he heard, you know, the sermon of Stephen, but we know that he was present. And what this means is he's approving of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the apostle Paul is, the most evil man on earth to the church at this point in time, or he is soon to become that. He, the Bible says, ravages them. And, and the Greek words are used to describe what a wild animal does to a human, hmm. rips the, their flesh apart. That's how Paul was. And that's why religious zealousness or religious passion is so dangerous apart from Christ. Hmm. That's, you know, we say, well, look at these radical Islamists. Well, they're radical in their religion and they don't have the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in them. And so what happens is radical religion can become animalistic in the way that it treats other people if you don't have the spirit of God living in you. And so what's amazing is the apostle Paul believes that he loves God with all of his heart. The problem is his heart. And so if your heart is evil, hmm. even love is wicked and love is evil. And so here he Whoa. is trying to do the right things for God. And inevitably what he's doing is he's doing the wrong things. And so he's passionate about that. And... Um, and that's what we need to learn as Christians is, if it wasn't for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new heart that God has given us, we can be just as crazy as every radical uh, Islamist who does what they do. Mm. And, and the reality is we need the gospel just as desperately as they do. We need the love of Christ in us. Mm -hmm. and, and the apostle Paul is basically a terrorist to the church. That's powerful. So this whole chapter ends, and in verses 59 through 60, says, They stoned him, and as they did, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. So Stephen's last words here really powerfully kind of mirror some of Jesus' last words on the cross. Why is he asking God to forgive them, just like Jesus did? Because I think ultimately that's, that's the pinnacle of faith, right? to forgive those who hurt you. I mean, that's what Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you and bless those who harm you. And he's doing that in this moment. And so Luke carries that out through his gospel. Jesus does this. So only Luke records the, the words, Father, forgive them from, for they know not what they do. Matthew doesn't have it, Mark doesn't have it, uh, and John doesn't have it. Only Luke has that. And so here, it makes sense that Stephen, remember his face changed. Mm-hmm. Something happened in Stephen's life that was so powerful in the Holy Spirit. He was so transfigured by his faith in Christ that ultimately he became Christ-like in such a way that not only did his face change, but his heart changed so radically that even while he's dying, 
he is Christ to these people. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for all of us as Christians, we need to be seriously convicted about that because you know, how, how transformed have our lives become you know, to the place that when, even when someone does us harm, that we are willing to represent Jesus and not our own pride and not our own rights. And it's powerful. Uh, it says he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them. His last words are words of grace as words of hate are being sprayed at him, and ultimately, he dies. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful, man. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this is uh, really awesome. Major, yeah, lots of good stuff here in Acts chapter 7. Um, so, hey, thanks for unpacking all that with us. We appreciate you guys for sending in your questions. Uh, if you've got stuff that come, that came up, man, this was a long, long chapter, and there's probably some intricacies and some details that maybe you've noticed and spotted in your reading that we didn't cover here. If you want to send that into us, we'd love to cover it when we do some follow-up and recap questions from uh, past chapters. We love hearing from you guys. So thank you so much for sending in those questions. You can do that uh, on sandalsearch.com slash the debrief. You can send them into our Facebook page. And of course, we love it when you guys find a like and share about us on Facebook. You can just search for the debrief podcast on Facebook. We'll pop right up and and uh, you know what we really want, though, is those five-star reviews uh, on <laughs> iTunes. It makes us so, so happy, guys. So if you can send And we in. need to pray that the Father would forgive them when they don't do it, because they don't oh. know what they do. Ooh, wow. that's a great... Mm. I was about to like make fun of Justin. They're like, oh, yeah, that's totally your thing. But apparently, Pastor Matt, yeah. you, you deeply... Father, forgive them, for they know not I'm going to stand behind Pastor Matt, so if you want to make fun of me, you got to make fun of both of us. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, speaking of making fun of things, let's hit the people with one of Stephanie's famous inspirational quotes. That Hold she good. found on the internet. I never want to actually take yep, credit Nathan for these. Nathan has specific. famous hot dogs. Stephanie has famous, famous inspirational quotes. quotes. Wow, thanks, guys. All right, t- this week's quote, put God first and you will never be last. Hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so awesome. Because I think by definition, when you put God first, you are last. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. I can just picture Stephen shouting that out as he's going down. I will never be last. Nope. Wow. Thank you.